Hi, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Veterans Association Food Bank. You can find them at veteransassociationfoodbank.ca. They are dedicated to supporting and enriching the lives of veterans and their families. As a community of veterans helping veterans, they support the base where together they create healthy and resilient futures. They do more than just feed veterans in need. There's all kinds of programs that they have to support the veteran community. So please consider giving veteransassociationfoodbank.ca. And welcome to another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Tremor Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. In our veteran circles, I keep hearing the name Don McElmoyle. And you've got to have Don on your show. You have to have to have Don on your show. It's like, well, it's up to her. And finally, I've got her. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Great to have you finally. So uh, you were telling me that today of all days is, um, I don't know if we'd call it irony or serendipity, but today's an interesting day to have you on the show. Why is that? Um, today is the long-awaited Justice Louise Arbor report that was ordered about 18 months ago, or I forget exactly when, but it has We've been waiting for it to come out with its new recommendations, see how different it is from the Madame Justice Marie Deschamps report, but it's being released today. So, you know, of all days, I picked today, and today is the day. <laughs> today is the day. So tell me about these reports. What are these reports about? Uh, basically, it's a in-depth look into the military system to see where change can happen. So Madam Justice Marie Deschamps did a report in 2015 and released a bunch of recommendations, which the military says that they've met. But when you look into them, they really haven't. There was a report that was released in November, apparently, that actually did an in-depth analysis to where the military says that they um came up like that they did the Deschamps report recommendations but interestingly enough even though it was released in November it didn't come out until last week for the public to read so um, these reports are reports they keep recommending things like but what is actually happening so you know I keep saying she can write whatever she wants it's what happens after whether they take her recommendations seriously and you know whether they implement some things like I I'm realistic I know change will take years but is it wrong to be wanted to be treated appropriately <laughs> yeah it's pretty simple isn't it I say it's a problem when it's a problem that we would just want to be treated properly <laughs> and I would say that is a problem mm -hmm. you joined the navy um, we joined at the same time uh, we joined the military we're back to back in Cornwallis although we uh, we hadn't met that I recall. And in those days, it's a lot different than it is today as, as far as um, what is considered to be acceptable and not. At what point did you decide to put your hand up and go, hey, something's happening and it's not okay and I would like some help, please? Um. Right from, like, the very beginning, right? Because, well, 
I never imagined that if I went to the hospital to report my assault and get a rape kit done, that my report would be used against me and I would be charged for them taking me to the male barracks. So a lot of people think that my assault is my trauma, which in a way is, yes. But the fact that coming, like telling got me in even more trouble and then, you know, they put me on a 21-day confinement to barracks, charged me $250, and made a spectacle of me. Um, that is more of a, tra- like, that was a re-traumatization that I carry with me forever because I think I did something wrong by telling that I was treated inappropriately. And, you know, it carried on for years and years and years. Just, I mean, till last year, I finally broke that cycle. That if I, if I tell, I'm going to get in trouble, right? So it left me with, you know, questions. And then I went off to Halifax after all of that happened. And somebody must have called ahead about me because I got told I didn't have a divisional officer. I ended up very sick. And so really, right from the beginning, I got released. And I started calling NDHQ saying, How did I get released 5D when I was in the psych ward? So really, I never lost that five-year-old curiosity that asks questions. (laughs) And I don't think some people like that. So I finally got to the right person, and they changed it, got it all changed to a medical so I could start applying for a pension. And I went back to school, so I took grade 13 English, And my teacher asked me to write about what happened in the military. And I was like, well, he goes, it might be therapeutic. So I ended up writing 100 pages. And uh, he got a female activist to read it, who then sent it to someone else. And then the Global Mail wanted to do a story. So they came and interviewed me. But in 1997, I think at that point, it was too controversial. So I've never stopped, you know, then my pension lawyer got me in touch with another girl that had almost the exact same story as me. And we were like, if there's two of us, there's got to be way more. Yeah. So she called McLean's and then I ended up on the cover and the rest is history. 24 years of history. (laughs) So tell me about the work that you are continuing to do. Um. Right now, I say that I'm more of a referral agency and sounding board, okay. <laughs> but I, I like to, I'm, I'm an advocate because, you know, this, this, what happened to me doesn't define me, but it's the fuel that drives me because, you know, I can't hate the military. It taught me how to adapt and overcome to absolutely everything. I say I can overcome any obstacle that I'm ever presented with now. Like I look at it and I'm like, I left three narcissistic husbands. That's an accomplishment, right? Like where, you know, other people are like, well, look, she got dragged into it. I'm like, most people get stuck. I left and bounced off to the next one and the next one because, you know, I didn't think that I deserved the love that I know I deserve now. But it spirals. (laughs) Sexual trauma wreaks havoc on our relationships, on Mm -hmm. those who we choose to be with, and when we do get a good one, <laughs> making that work is still not easy. Um, how did the trauma that you experienced affect your relationships? What did you bring to the table that 
you that you had to overcome? Uh, well, my first relationship, I was, I'd already, I had a son and I got involved with a gentleman. He was a Jehovah's Witness. And because I had just left the military, I was searching for another family. Sure. And I got sucked in pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, I ended up marrying him, having another son. And this was all when I was trying to still go public. So they came the organization and asked me not to do it. And so that pretty much going public wrecked that relationship. And I ended up leaving, but it gave me the strength to go back to school. So I went back to university at 29, 30 years old. I had to actually go back to high school and get my grade 11 and OAC chemistry to be able to get into nursing. Oh, wow. So at 28 years old, I was in grade 13 chemistry so that I could go to university. And I, after I left him, I realized, you know, I still have the potential to be somebody. And that front cover of the McLean says I want to be a doctor. Well, two little boys, I don't think I could be a doctor now, but who says I can't be a nurse? Sure. So, you know, I went to nursing school and, and then, you know. RN was two years back then, right? Uh, this was a four-year university program. Oh, okay. So it was a full um, Bachelor of Science. It was when they had just changed in Ontario to you had to have a Bachelor of Science in nursing. You couldn't just have the college degree now. Right. So I did a, I, I went to university for five years because I went the first year just to make sure that I could do it. And I took two courses. And then I plunged into the nursing program, which I thought I did not very good at because I only ended up with a 65, but I did not take into account that I was a single mom of two little boys and worked full time. C's C's get degrees. You're good. (laughs) Nobody asks what uh, your, your score was once you get the degrees, like you got it or you don't, that's it. Yeah. But you know, when you've already been conditioned that like you're a bad person, (laughs) you just think that that, like, I thought that was a failure for years. You know, and then I'm like, wait a second, how many people go through university with two little boys on their own working full time? Yeah, that's right. Right, And I had to turn it all around and reframe it all. So, but it's wreaked a lot of havoc, even on my family too. Absolutely. What type of nursing did you go into? I wanted to be a psych nurse. I really, really, really did because I wanted to help people that were like me. I never wanted to see anyone get to that broken point of where I was. Like, I just wanted to lift everyone up. (laughs) And um, when I did my rotation on there, I saw the way that the nurses looked at those people. And I, I was, like, instantly filled with horror, actually. I was like, I can't be a psych nurse and look at those people that way because I, those, those are my people. <laughs> right. And I mean, I, so I went crying to my director of my nursing program and they, they put me in. So I ended up doing strokes, rehabs. Um, it was like, I learned way more than I ever would have learned as a psych nurse. And then I went on to do like med surge. So I would do a lot of medical floors, but then I also got, I did visiting nursing and then I ended up uh, in nursing homes. 
So I worked with a lot of elderly veterans. They called me in sometimes when they were freaking out because they didn't know how to handle them. And, you know, I'm like, well, you don't lock them in the room. <laughs> that's, <laughs> like, a, that's a good start. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's, I really miss um, going into places and working with people. And during but, your, your nursing career, how were you treated? Um, it's, it, you know, it's different because sometimes they would find out I would have PTSD because I'm not, I don't hide it. You know, I've had it long enough that I know when I'm going to have a bad spell. Mm-hmm. Like, I can feel it coming on. It's like you feel the tornado starting inside. And I would call in sick or something. But I found that a lot of people, as soon as they heard that veteran with PTSD label, they automatically judged me. And it was kind of, it was difficult. And then it's hard, too, because, you know, I just, I, I cared and to see people being mistreated or, you know, not treated and what I felt was an appropriate timeline, <laughs> that, that really hurt me. So it was, it was a hard profession, but I mean, I love it. I, I love helping people, but that's what kids that don't feel wanted or needed do. <laughs> they go out and want to feel wanted or needed and help people. Uniform services is jam-packed full of people that score really high on the ACEs score. So uh, the ACEs score being childhood traumas and, and measuring it. And the people that end up being special operators, they tend to also to be even higher on the ACEs score. It's like there's this constant drive to be more, to be stronger, to prove to yourself and others that you're strong and not weak. Because at one time you were vulnerable and abused. And how that affects the rest of your life and that drives people into bodybuilding into powerlifting all kinds of different um reflexes that 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 happen as a result so that somebody that was once vulnerable and taken advantage of feels strong so that that can't happen again it's uh it's incredible how it can shape your entire life I do archery. <laughs> so you can poke holes in people? <laughs> well, it just makes me feel like I could defend myself, right? It leaves me feeling very, very accomplished that, you know, I can pull that bow. Well, I can't right now. So right now I feel very helpless. <laughs> but, you know, my dad always made sure that I knew I was like a competent boxer. So even though I know how to protect myself, sometimes you still can't. But being able to shoot that bow and arrow just leaves me with this invincible feeling. And then the other thing that makes me feel invincible is when I dress up. So like I'll dress up as Wonder Woman or Harley Quinn or sometimes just Snow White. And it leaves me with this like, um, I, I say it's like an archetype building, right? So like I'm empowering myself with that costume to be the me I always wanted to be <laughs> because I've been afraid to be me for so long because for some reason I always got told to not be me. Like don't feel, don't do that. Dress like this, do this like that. And because I was a people pleaser, I, had, I really honestly it was, in the last four years have learned who I am, what I like, what I want to do, <laughs> what, you know, I was lost in everyone else, my kids, partners, my family, whoever. I had to be a part of something. I couldn't just be separate. 
what's your sense of community now, Don? You know, the reason that I keep doing this and there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they're, they're so lost and broken and alone. And the way I look at it, I've met some incredibly amazing people across this country. Some of them not in person, only online, but I would never have met them or had anything or any reason to associate with them had I not had some sort of trauma. And that is a beautiful gift to have, you know, I could probably travel across the country and meet up in every little city with someone that I've met online, you know, just someone that like I've talked to and, you know, I've, I get lots of people that will see me on the news or whatever, and they'll, they'll reach out and tell me their story. And I would love to just be able to hug those people that have told me their story. And so I, you know, people don't understand, but when someone discloses something like that, it's an honor. Like it takes so much sometimes to, to tell what's happened to you. And when those people disclose to me, I'm just, I'm filled with this like honor that they chose me to share that with. And it's just, you know, I have goosebumps right now because it's such a hard thing to talk about. And if I provide a safe space for people to talk about it, I just want people to be able to open up and stop getting sick. Because the more you suppress stuff, the sicker you get. And I see all these people with like, they're, you know, can't even walk anymore. Or, you know, they're always sick. And it's like, start talking. Guess what? You'll get better. (laughs) Recover out loud. Mm Mm-hmm. That's and it's not just about the therapy. It's about meeting like-minded people, doing things together to realize, like, my friend Rob that you know, when I have a freak out, I'll call him, and he's like, oh, man, I would have done the same thing. And then I don't feel like such a, like a, you know, I know, I know I'm not an idiot, but, like, at Christmas, my kids didn't show up, and I had the turkey out on thawed. And neither one of them showed up and had been out on the counter for three days and it was starting to smell. And I threw a hissy fit and I threw it out the front yard on off my porch out into the front yard, yelling at my kids that weren't there. (laughs) And I'm sure all my neighbors thought I was insane. But when I called my friend Rob, he said he would have done the same thing. And I felt so much better because even if he wouldn't have and he just said that, it made me feel not so crazy. It made me feel like normal for me and that it's okay to be me because for so long I didn't even think I was allowed to be me or didn't even know what that entailed in a way. I think you... And then going on that cover of that magazine screwed it up too because I got all these stigmas in my head over what was on that cover. You're doing a wonderful job of illustrating the power of peer support, the power of peer support and the sense of community that it provides. Because when you're with other people that have been through something similar or have similar symptoms to you and a similar background, it, uh, it is wonderful at breaking the isolation. The isolation being separate from community is the pain. That is the pain of PTSD feeling detached from the person that you used to be and being detached from community and not having a sense of community. And so your, your right uh, earring keeps hitting the, uh, 
uh, the wire, oh. which keeps hitting the microphone. <laughs> so it's tick, tick, tick. There you go. You got it. <laughs> right one. Yeah. Good to go. Thanks, Don. But um, have you been a part of any formal peer support groups? Um, I'm in a couple. You see, I have, like, I have issues with what's going on these days. Like, the... Um, I get that people want to learn about mental health and stuff, but like I've had some people say, I don't know how I would help you. I'm not mental health first aid trained. And I'm like, you don't need to be mental health first aid trained to be a good friend. Right. And then in our, in our peer support world, now they want us to have, I called the center of excellence on PTSD and I wanted to be a stakeholder on MST. And they told me I was unqualified and that I needed to go back to school and that I needed a peer support uh, certificate, which here in Ontario is like $4,000 a year program or something. And I'm like, I had a 1-800 number in 1998 that so many people called. I've been doing this. I'm a nurse. I ran programs. And I, I went to AA with my mom for years, you know, and you want me to take a course to help people. So, you know, there's a lot, of, these... a lot of silliness in the world uh, with that sort of thing. And I know the course you're talking about, yeah, it's a couple grand uh, to, yeah. to, to take it. And I have no idea if it's good or not. <laughs> I, I would have to go through it, but there's no way I'm going to spend a couple thousand bucks on it. Um, just, I mean, I already spent so much on my nursing education and I feel that that gave me like a little heads up, but now it's almost like, um, I'm getting, so not only was I just an ordinary seaman, I'm only a nurse, right? So like when you call these people, if you don't have a doctorate, you're nobody. And it's like, but I have lived experience, which, you know. To me, I look at the homeless man on the street has just as much value as I do. They have a life. They have experience. They've gone through things that I haven't. You know, what makes him not an expert on life? He's an expert on his life. Right? So I just, I hold value in every single person brings something. And that we can learn from everyone and it doesn't matter what your education is. So making people pay to be a peer support worker or whatever, like to take that course, I keep telling them, I'm like, I'm like, this is, it may sound vulgar rude, right? But I'm like, when you go to AA, the doctor sitting beside you is an alcoholic just like you. He doesn't pull out his, I'm an MD card there, right? He's sitting in that audience listening just the way you are. And that's peer support, not you know, I've got a certificate so I can help you. <laughs> yeah, I, I know the organization that you're talking about, Don. And uh, there's certain- there's a few out there. It's just it's ridiculous now how they want you to be like, you, you have to have a certificate for everything. Like now you need, there's like, if you want to be an inspirational speaker, there's a whole certificate program too. And I'm like, I ain't doing that. Mm-hmm. I'll just go on a stage in a park and start speaking. <laughs> right? Like the certifications. Yeah, I, I don't know who's asking for, for these for to be an inspirational uh, speaker, but uh, that's kind of my world, and I don't know anybody, mm-hmm. I don't know anybody with a certificate. Uh, world-class people. So uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get too wrapped up around the axle about any of that. Um, no, I just do me. That, that's it. <laughs> for 
peer support groups and peer support resources. Um, first of all, there's uh, all kinds of books by Sid Gravel. He's got four books on them. Um, OSIS, Operation Stress Injury Support, something. <laughs> and the book that saved my life, Mark, was uh, it was written in the States, and it was um, Healing PTSD Through the Medicine Wheel. My Indigenous Studies instructor at Trent University, when I went back to university a couple years ago, suggested it. And, oh, my goodness. I read that book, and my whole view on everything changed because it talked about, like, the marginalization. It talked about how, um, like, there's no honor when we come, like, there's no honor left now. Like, you're only uh, revered when you're still in uniform. Right. And then you come home to your city and you're all of a sudden nobody, which is why I started my group of my veterans assisting communities, because I feel like veterans, when they come, when they leave the service, they're sort of lost. And, but you can still be a leader in your community and give back in your little community, not just you don't, you're not serving your country anymore, but you can serve your community. You know, so there's still other avenues once you get out like that book was like tip top for me and I had to go outside the box too because you know I've been in therapy since I got out which is almost 30 years (laughs) and not a whole lot was working for me so um parts therapy really worked because you were talking about that ace stuff the childhood trauma Mm -hmm. well you know that's why like if my parts therapy I'll just quickly you know I've got a little girl inside of me that I need to talk to. And then I've got an angry teenager inside of me that I need to talk to on a constant basis and make sure that I reintegrate them all and make sure that they know they didn't do anything wrong either. You know, they kept me together and I need to honor them and respect them because they didn't get that when they were young. So bringing it all together, right? I like my PTSD It's compounded. So like getting to the root. Yeah, I've got my military stuff because I didn't even know I had childhood stuff. It decided to pop out a couple years ago and say hello. Right. But, you know, you deal with what you can and you do the best you can with what you have. And now that I know all of this, I know why I made some of the decisions I made. And I can forgive myself for making those decisions because I didn't know better. Now that I do. Right. Would I take that road again? Depends. I might take it until I start to see too many red flags. But, you know, red is my favorite color, so I may still go that way. (laughs) That means there's lessons to be learned. (laughs) The trauma that we endure, that we go through, puts us in a position where we can help others. And back to peer support, um, the other organization is OSI CAN, and that's a national organization. Are, Are you familiar with OSI CAN? I'm not sure I've heard of that one. I heard the other two that you were talking about, but not that one. Well, um, yeah, OSI CAN has courses and whatnot. I I still have to get Jason Trenholm on the show here. Jason, if you're listening, get on the show. You've been avoiding me. Get on here, buddy. You've been ducking me. Um, But uh, OSICAN.ca, maybe, OSI-CAN. It's not too hard to find on Facebook and, and to Google it. But but that is a peer support network for veterans and first responders. Uh, I know a lot of the males have issues with us 
They don't know how to talk to us. Okay, so I saw a guy from OSIS last summer, and he's like, how am I supposed to help someone like you? And I said, by just talking to me like you talk to everyone else, right? Like, so I think that because people think, oh, you're MST, you're different. And I need to make the point that, like, if we're out there with everyone else, then don't walk on eggshells. Don't, like, you know, like... Talk to us. We're still the same as everybody else. Just because we have had like a, a traumatic experience doesn't mean that we're not still people, right? Like I had a, an ex and he would be like, oh, but you're on the cover of that magazine. And I was like, how many girls that you've been with have been traumatized yet you judge me just because I'm on a magazine? Like you can't, like there's a, a like, we're people. We want to be talked to. We don't want to be avoided just because we were sexually assaulted. You don't want to be put in like a separate category. Like I look at as all as like veterans with PTSD, right? It doesn't matter how we got it. The absolute truth is we all have trauma. The relative truth is we all got it differently. We all experienced it and handled it differently. You know, so I just want more, more acceptance and not less judgment. I don't want someone to look at me and go, oh, we don't want her around. She's MST. Because, you know, I could have the answers and be the life of the party and you're judging me just because I was sexually traumatized. Wow. You know? I just wanted to leave that tidbit because, you know, sometimes the guys don't know how to treat us. Treat us normal. I agree, Dawn, that trauma is trauma is trauma. And regardless of the modality of injury, the symptoms and the downstream effect tends to be similar, if not the same in some circumstances. And I also agree with you that different people process things differently and things can manifest differently. We're all individuals. And just because it affects one person one way doesn't mean that it affects another person another way. Um, But, I also agree that groups don't necessarily have to be broken down uh, in, into MST or um, uh, OSIs. However, do you see a value in having an MST-specific group? Or w- would you prefer... Yes, I do, for the people that don't feel safe yet, because there are a lot that like haven't done the work that some of us have and don't feel comfortable in the bigger group. So yes. And in relation to that, the SMRC is going to be standing up a peer support group. I'm not sure how it's being done, but it's supposed to be happening sometime in June. There's also, it's not just 20,000, which is an, an informative group that um, keeps people up to date on what's going on. And then there's a, another peer support group, Canadian survivors of MST. And then there's a public group. Let's just like, uh, just that educates people with all the articles, every single article that comes out. So there are some little places. And then the SMRC, which is the sexual misconduct response center is standing up an actual peer support uh, portal, which is supposed to be happening in June. So I see the value in having it, and my hope is that, you know, once you get your a handle on your MST, that, you know, you'll go back out into the bigger veteran world because 
I did my treatment with three guys and that's when I realized that like all our symptoms were the same and you know we just had different experiences and it was an eye eye opening moment you know that just because this happened to me you know it doesn't define me I can still keep going we all had something and we'll all keep going you know is starting your own peer support group something that you would like to do I have this idea, it's more along the lines of AA, where it's more of like a, um, uh, like a, I don't know if you ever heard of Wings of Change. No. They were a PTSD support group here in Ontario, and uh, it was more for first responders. But it's more like just a support group where, like, you know, you could go once a month or once a week and, like, just discuss life and like, you know, so like, Hey, say if I had that Turkey episode and I went to my meeting like that month and I, Oh my God, I did this. And then someone was like, I did that before, you know, but in person. Right. So I wanted to call it overcoming obstacles. And I had like all these things written out like AA, like, like rules and, and all of that, like nobody's better than anyone, you know, what is that saying? Nobody's better than me and I'm no better than anyone. Like I wanted all of like equality in this group. <laughs> it's important. I don't know. So I've... that is important. If there's uh, the best part about any group is if it's a group without egos. That's what I like about my. Uh, I'm a competitive arm wrestler now, and getting together with uh, the other arm wrestlers it's like my favorite environment because there's no room for egos if somebody comes out uh comes in the room all puffy chest and i'll tell you how tough i am well the table's right there we're about to find out what you can and cannot do and uh just yesterday i muckled onto a pretty big dude and uh with some with some pretty serious arms he's like twice the size of me and he couldn't move me and so there's if you had an ego you got to find a way to put it in your back pocket. Yeah. I know it's just, it's ego that screws those groups, those groups up. You know, if anybody mentions their rank that they were, it's like, Oh no, you're not ready. (laughs) Yeah. The minute a hierarchy comes into it because I've had so little value of myself for so many years, as the minute that hierarchy rank or whatever comes into it, I'm, I automatically feel little. Yeah. And then I'm like the smallest person in the room. And I actually like will physically make myself the smallest person in the room. As soon as hierarchy comes into it, I don't know why. It's something I'm still working on. You know, I don't want to shrink when someone says they're a general. <laughs> I want to stand right back up there and go, I'm an ordinary seaman, right? Well, no, I'm a sailor third class now. They changed it on me. People are people are people. I've had uh, General Rick Hillier on the show, Aaron O'Toole, like people at the top of the food chain. Uh, They're just people. And they got feelings, and those feelings can get hurt, and they have insecurities just like everybody else. And they're just people who happen to perform really well so that they could climb a ladder. I had an hour Zoom meeting with the chief of defense staff. And the best part about that is he treated me like a human being. The current sitting, Wayne Iyer, I I don't know how to say his last name. Yeah, Iyer. Wayne Iyer. 
he, he made me feel like he, like he, hum, it was a human conversation. He was wearing his civilian clothes. You know, we joked and I was talking about Vikings and he's like, you want to be Lagatha, don't you? And I was like, hell yes. Right. Like, and you know, he, it, it wasn't like I'm a general and I'm above you. Right. It was like just a, a conversation between two people. And it was one of the most healing things that I've had, you know, just, I, I'm like, my chief said I was uh, nobody, nothing, and I was never going to amount to anything. I was going nowhere in life, and here I am talking to you. <laughs> I'm not such a nobody now, am I? Right? So it's those little things, like talking to the chief of defense staff for an hour, right? And, it, you know, whether he paid lip service or not, he made me feel like a human being again. He just took the time. You know? And then I, fa- I uh, wanted to talk to Vice Admiral Baines because I wanted to thank him for his willingness to engage with survivors after he upset everyone when he went golfing with General Vance. Uh. So he had some meetings with people. He did some, like, uh, reconciliation with some other people. And I just wanted to, you know, I'm like, these guys are in the top position. If no one gives them thanks... Why, what, what incentive do they have to continue? So I reached out to some people I knew and I said that I wanted, I just wanted to thank him for his willingness to engage. And I woke up to a text from him saying, Hey, Don, this is Vice Admiral Craig Baines. I heard you wanted to talk to me. And I'm like, look at this. Like, and then, you know, I got to talk to him for a half an hour on the phone and, he made me feel so important. He said, like, I have a shipbuilding meeting and a parliamentary committee meeting, and I need you to know that this is the most important thing that I will be doing today. You know, just because talking to us and learning from us is helping in some ways. Even if it's just like in that, that moment of that conversation, if, you know, if you can connect on a human level, they're going to remember. They're not just going to pay lip service. People that are truly confident um, never have to make somebody else feel small. The people that are truly confident always are trying to make you feel big. And they're aware of the room. And they're aware that because of their position in society that you might um, unfortunately feel small next to them. So they take the time to make sure that you feel important. I had that experience with uh, Paul Brandt on uh, last Thursday. You know, big country music star. He's the nicest guy I've ever met in my entire life. He's very uh, aware of his fame. So he asks questions about you and who you are. Because that's what good people do. That's what people who are, that's what a kind person is. That's what nice means. Nice means that it's not mm-hmm. all about you. Uh, it's, it's, it's about the other person. And, you're cur- and you show curiosity about the other person and ask questions to the other person. And instead of being the type that's me, 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 me. Those are the people that don't feel that they're good enough. So they'll tell you how great they are. And it's always the same. If somebody's telling you how great they are, it's because they don't believe it. Every time. Well, I got an opportunity to uh, be Ken Shamrock's chauffeur. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, how, I got, how, was, how was Ken? 
He's awesome. Is he a nice guy? Like I'd met him before and somebody had told him about me. So he wrote me an autograph thing that said thank you to me. So then when I had to drive him, he's like, normally I don't talk to people. And then he put on his headphones and then all of a sudden he took them off and started talking to me and like telling me all about his family life and everything. And I was like, this is so cool. (laughs) Right. Like, and then I, like, I just sat and I listened to him talk and talk and talk. Right. And I'm like, this is so like, you know, he's talking to me. (laughs) He just said, I don't talk. And now he's talking. (laughs) Right. And it was like so humbling to sit in that car with him and like, I tell him little things and, but he gave me so much good advice in that car because it's almost like he got a feeling that like he knew that I have a purpose, but I have like little confidence. And so like, you know, he was just giving me such great advice in that two hours. And I was like, so honored to spend that time with him and then to, you know, drop him off. And I'm like, can I ask one stupid question? He's like, go for it. (laughs) Right. So my stupid question was, are the Diaz brothers really that out there? (laughs) He goes, yeah, (laughs) that was it. (laughs) So, but it was, it's humbling. What have you done for yourself, uh, Don, to help build your confidence? What sort of things have you incorporated into your life that uh, helps to build that part of you? I am challenging myself to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So like I, I just recently did a speech. Um, I paid for it like two and a half years ago for the fearless woman summit. Um, and I'm doing another one in June. So as my biggest fear is being on that stage. But for some reason, when I'm on that stage, I feel like I belong there. <laughs> so it's, you know, I've, I, I, never, I didn't ask for any of this, but it was a blessing and a gift that I was given because I can stand on that stage and empower people with my story and make them laugh and cry at the same time. I can make them feel. And, you know, that my biggest fear turned into my biggest gift. That, you know, is pretty incredible. And so, like, empowering myself like if I know I've been sitting around way too long I'll get in the car and I'll just drive and I don't know where I'm going at all but I'll usually end up finding water and me and my dog will just sit there and then I'll end up end up talking to someone or something and just like having those aha moments while I'm out (laughs) and I'm like I'm so glad I left the house today (laughs) so it's really because I'm alone and it's just me. It's up to me to challenge myself to get out there and do things and not stay stuck in that hole that, you know, I could stay stuck in. Don, the work that you do being on this show today and sharing your story across 67 countries <laughs> takes tremendous courage and sharing your story absolutely helps others feel like they're not alone. And that's what you've done today. Today, you're helping thousands of people around the world uh, realize that they're not alone, they're not the only one, and that it's okay to put your hand up and, uh, and tell your story. And recovering out loud, which is what you're doing, 
empowers others to reach out for help. And thank you for doing that, Don. You're helping people right now, this moment on the show. I got a granddaughter. She's 10. If I don't get better, she may, she like, it's breaking cycles, right? Yes. So the better I get, the better my, my son may get. And then the more opportunity she has for a better future. Don, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hi, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Veterans Association Food Bank. You can find them at veteransassociationfoodbank.ca. They are dedicated to supporting and enriching the lives of veterans and their families. As a community of veterans helping veterans, they support the base where together they create healthy and resilient futures. They do more than just feed veterans in need. There's all kinds of programs that they have to support the veteran community. So please consider giving veteransassociationfoodbank.ca.